Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. This morning's reading is taken from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Our second reading is 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Thanks be to God for these messages. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, worship team. And good morning, everyone. Um, as you can see, there is a QR code. You are welcome to join us, should you wish, if you want to participate in our discussion. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Everything is anonymous. So yeah, take the time. QR code's there. Um, there's always going to be a link at the top too, which you can go to if need be. Um, yeah. So when I was a lot younger, I wanted to be a policeman. Then I wanted to be an engineer, then a product designer. Uh, Then I wanted to be a graphic designer. I actually did that one. Um, But when I was younger, I never said, I want to be a youth pastor. And yet, here I am. Let me ask you all a question. Do you know what you're called to do or be in your life? As you can probably tell, for a long time I had no clue whatsoever. Maybe you're in school and like this is something you're thinking about, you know, VCE coming up. Um, you know, you don't really know potentially, and that's okay. You could be in the middle of your career, maybe, feeling as though you're meandering through life like a maybe a nomadic professional, still uncertain about your true calling. Maybe you've grown weary of your current career and you're contemplating embarking on an entirely new path. Perhaps you're at a later stage in life and everything is changing. Maybe you're entering a new season, your kids have left the house. I think a better way to think about calling is as what God made you to do, like how you're hardwired by God. Did you know there are 7.8 billion people on earth today and that's that's rising right that's a lot of people yeah and i think one of the beautiful things about humanity is how different we all are like no two of us are the same 
And that has profound implications on how we bear God's image, right? So we're all tasked with the responsibility to rule, cultivate, labor, steward the earth. Yet the manner in which we fulfill this calling is different for each and every single one of us. Like the human ecosystem is characterized by its complexity, its diversity, its intricacy, where each of us, we have a part to play. Now, lots of you will know I'm a sucker for good coffee, right? Some might even call me a bit of a snob, all right, or, or an elitist, and I'm okay with that. Um, but let's take, for example, the coffee I had this morning. Someone built the machines that I used to brew the coffee. Someone delivered the beans to my door. Someone took those beans and roasted them from raw green beans to a well-rounded aromatic roast with depth and character. Um, someone grew those beans from an estate in Santo Antonio in Brazil. And someone actually had to go over there and build a relationship with the farmers and establish a deal that was fair for all parties. I could go on and on, right? You can apply this to anything. But my point is that we all have meaningful contributions to make in our civilization. Dr. Gerald Sitzer says, if the Christian faith is going to have any kind of impact at all, it must address how believers live in the secular world. So ordinary people must learn to live as disciples of Jesus when they're not at church. So we often think of calling as this kind of like maybe mysterious, like enigmatic idea. There are people who are like waiting around for a calling from God to come in the form of maybe a dream or a vision or maybe a crazy prophet who walks up to them on the sidewalk uh, with like fire in his eyes and a word from God. And look, yeah, look, that does happen. But the Bible also shows us that ordinary people, not just extraordinary people, are called by God while doing ordinary things. Like in the book of Exodus, specifically in chapter 31, we encounter a character named Bezalel, and it reads, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So at first glance, Bezalel might seem just like, you know, the chief architect, the designer of the original temple, the one responsible for, you know, conceptualizing the dwelling place of God. However, it goes much deeper than that. What sets Bezalel apart is that he was filled with the Spirit of God for this exact purpose. And this represents a pivotal moment in the whole biblical narrative, because this is actually marks the first time anyone is described in that manner. Like, surprisingly, it wasn't like the big name biblical OGs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or even Moses. Instead, it was Bezalel who was filled with the Spirit of God first. And Notably, the very first instance of someone being filled with the Spirit of God wasn't for delivering prophecies, it wasn't for parting seas, it wasn't for performing miraculous healings, or for offering powerful prayers, it was for the sphere of work. Whether it was, you know, white, the white-collar realm of architecture and design, or if it was blue-collar work, 
in the world of construction, stone setting, craftsmanship, Bezalel was chosen to carry out this divine work. And again, in the story of David, when it came to the time to select a successor to Israel's first king, God directed the prophet Samuel to the village of Bethlehem. Jesse, David's father, presented his six impressive sons before Samuel. And these young men appeared to be the most obvious choices. But to Samuel's surprise, God did not indicate that any of them was the appointed one. Samuel inquired if there were any more sons. And Jesse mentioned somewhat dismissively, there's still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Now, our English Bibles, they translate this really politely, but the Hebrew term that was used for youngest is um, defined as small, young, or unimportant. It was like a derogatory way of referring to David. It was a dismissive way of saying, you know, our little brother. So there stood the unimpressive one, engaged in what was considered the least demanding task on the farm. However, to the amazement of everyone, it was this seemingly unimpressive an unimportant David, who was anointed by the prophet as Israel's future king. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And here again we see the same divine spirit that once filled Bezalel now descending upon David, another ordinary worker, simply going about ordinary daily tasks and work. And as we bring it back to the New Testament, I want to bring the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, under Paul's leadership, a vibrant, diverse church emerged in Ephesus, drawing people from various cultural backgrounds um, all together. And here, he stayed in Ephesus for three years, and that's the longest time Paul ever ministered in one place. However, as time passed, Paul was imprisoned, and it was during his imprisonment that he penned this letter back to the church in Ephesus. His aim was to fortify the faith of the congregation. And there's a real change in how the letter is written. So in the first three three chapters, they're filled with like understanding God and praise towards him. Um, He explains what salvation's about. He fills it with prayers and wonder for all God has done for them. Yet as Paul enters chapter four, where our reading begins, he takes all of this and he changes gear basically saying, because of all I've written here in chapters one to three, all of this, I want you to live this out. So we see Paul write in his letter to the Ephesians at the start of chapter four, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So we've talked so far about the work of Bezalel and David. I think people can often interchange the terms work with the word vocation. However, there's a key difference between the two. The term vocation comes from the Latin word meaning calling. So your vocation is your calling in life. So within our community here, you look around, right? You'll find a diverse array of people, right? From the dedicated working professionals, stay-at-home parents, part-time employees, retirees, the unemployed, students and those juggling multiple jobs to make ends meet. The Apostle Paul, when writing, to the Ephesian church had a message that resonated with all of these people. And we're going to try to do the same because in truth, it matters not whether you hold the title of CEO of a private equity firm or if you're in the midst of a job search or just studying to take the next step in your career. In each of these circumstances, we have been uniquely equipped 
to embrace a God-given vocation, a path available to us within our work environments, allowing us to make meaningful contributions and produce good in the world. Now, I have to admit, I've got a really soft spot for like personality tests. You guys familiar with those? Like, like Myers-Briggs, Big Five, Enneagram, love the Enneagram. Uh, it's good stuff. Uh, it's a journey almost into like understanding the intricacies of being human. Like these tests are pathways to self-discovery, a means of like unraveling the unique blueprint God designed for each of us. They can be incredibly illuminating. Like so much of discerning one's calling revolves around comprehending who you are and what like distinctive contributions you and only you can offer to the world. The Latin word for vocation can also be translated as voice. So your vocation is your voice. Discovering your calling is like uncovering your distinct voice. The melody that rises above that collective hum of 7.8 billion people on this planet. It's not a choice like selecting a spouse or a house or a car. It's like an excavation, a process of unearthing and unveiling what truly resonates within you. Like, we usually ask like little kids, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? Like none of them say, I want to be an accountant. Or I'm thinking insurance. Or I feel a pull to construction law. Sorry, Jeremy. I asked my son Job what he wanted to do when he gets older. And he responded that he wants to work in a hospital and help people get better. It's very cute. Though I do wonder if we're setting them up for failure with that question. Maybe perhaps a more fitting question for all of us would be, who are you? What do you believe is God's intended purpose for you as you journey through life? That's kind of the fundamental question. Who are we? How has our creator uniquely designed us? What was on God's mind the day we entered the world? These are the questions at the heart of calling and vocation. And in the culture that I grew up in, it was really common to hear phrases, let me know if you heard these before, you know, Nathan, you can do anything you put your mind to. If you work hard enough, if you believe in yourself, if you're patient, you can do anything. Anyone else heard that before, right? And isn't that such like a middle-class Western way of thinking? I don't think anyone living in a developing nation would talk like that. It's also dangerous because it's simply not true, is it? Like, I actually can't be anything I want to be. No matter how hard I work or how much I believe in myself, all I can be is me, who the creator God made me to be. Like, resisting the image of God within us, while we might achieve short-term success, it ultimately leads to inner turmoil. Like, for instance, if you're an introvert and spend 10 hours a day in like a people-centric sales role, it can drain your energy. Likewise, if you're like a thinker, if you have a thirst for knowledge, but end up doing manual labor, it might breed a lot of frustration. And if you're a leader who thrives on guiding people towards a common goal, but you're stuck in like research or just like writing for a lab or a uni, it's only a matter of time before you feel a sense of disconnection and frustration. 
I mean, of course, there comes a point where I have to be you know, thankful that we even have a job, especially in this economy. There are many people who have it very tough in and outside of our communities. And it's true that Jesus is with us regardless of our occupation. And what he referred to as life to the full isn't conditional on us having our dream job. But Ian introduced me to this book by Parker Palmer and called Let Your Life Speak. And that's pretty much the crux of it. Like he writes, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. The point is that we should grow out of who we are. When we discuss vocation, we're referring to what you undertake to bring goodness into the world, how you are distinctly equipped with, within the ordinary realms of your daily existence, embracing your limitations, your character and your skill set all in the pursuit of contributing to the grand narrative of redemption. You have a calling. There's someone God made you to be. Something God made you to do. And we saw in your answers before that there were some of you who weren't sure about your personal calling. So I wanted to give you a little framework of questions that you can ask yourself to start beginning to dig a little deeper into the understanding of your sense of self, how God has hardwired you. So maybe ask yourself questions like, what do you love? What are you passionate about? What triggers your anger, sadness, happiness? What fills you with energy? What thoughts keep you awake at night? Or if you're the quiet type, what can you not stop talking about? What are you good at? And what are you bad at? Hopefully the answer to this question is the same as what do you love, but not always. What does your world need? As you see your city, your nation, your generation, and the world at large, what do you feel is lacking? What does the world need more of in your view? When you observe the world, do you ever think, someone needs to address this? Maybe that someone's you. What are the open doors in your life? What has God spread out in front of you? What are people who know you saying? Sometimes the people who love us have a better understanding of our true selves than we do. Um, They can see who we genuinely are. Pay attention to them. If you're married, you know, listen to your spouse. If you have loving parents, value their insights. If you're part of a community, be attentive to them. Ask them, what do you see in me? And then genuinely listen to their responses. And finally, what's the spirit stirring in your heart? And that's kind of similar to the first question, but a little different because sometimes the spirit will call us to do stuff we don't want to do or can't imagine doing, like becoming a youth pastor. For many of us, our perception of calling begins as hazy as an, an uncertain, more of a feeling and an aspiration than like a detailed five-year plan. However, as time goes on, it begins to crystallize. For me, I believe God has called me to build up and encourage others. <clears throat> right now, it's in, that's in the context of this wonderful community and the younger generations. Like for most of us, the true nature of our calling or vocation might not become evident until later in life. That's all right too. But I know some of you are sitting here thinking, really? I know that God calls people to church stuff but I'm just a retail assistant at Chemist Warehouse. How is that a calling from God? I think many of us tend to 
compartmentalize our lives into what we consider sacred or spiritual. What, like, what, what, sacred or spiritual, what we may believe matters to God, and what is secular or physical, which, by application, we think doesn't hold much significance to God, right? Or at least not in the same way. The problem with this widespread limiting perspective is that when defined in this manner, most of life becomes secular, right? The sacred amount is to just like a small slice of the pie. Things like, you know, attending church, praying, reading the scriptures, evangelism, this might add up to like maybe 5% of our lives if we consider ourselves exceptionally spiritual. The other 95% of our existence is dedicated to tasks such as, you know, grocery shopping, walking the dog, trimming our toenails, reading in the park, devouring a delicious curry too quickly and then contending with that post-meal bloated feeling. That's the stuff of everyday life, right? And I think so many of us experience a degree of frustration because we believe that our daily activities, our work and rest, our leisure, don't have meaning and significance because we categorize them as secular. And when we view them as meaningless and pointless in the grand context of heaven and hell and eternal life, simply simply just because they're not considered sacred. Like, so much of our lives, it's in the mundane. It's not glamorous. We don't feel as if we're changing the world. Instead, we're changing nappies. You know, responding to emails, fine-tuning an Excel spreadsheet. And that leaves us feeling sort of lost or frustrated, wondering if any of it really matters. Or maybe we might have a sense of guilt because of our occupation. Like, being a receptionist isn't classified as sacred, yet we might genuinely find joy and pride in our work. And we get back home and enjoy a glass of wine, watch a killer movie, savor a delicious meal. There's that nagging guilt again because we love it so much. It feels good, it feels right, it feels down to earth, it feels human, but doesn't fit in that spiritual category. Like that whole... The whole idea of what's sacred and what's secular, it's really warped. Because here's the thing. In the Hebrew worldview, all of life is spiritual. In our Western understanding, we compartmentalize our lives. Say, like, our lives are a chocolate cake. Doesn't that look good? Like, delicious, right? So we'd take a bite... And if we're in the Western perspective, we'd take a bite and we'd try to taste the isolated ingredients with each mouthful. Mmm, I'm just going to savour the egg here. That's my professional life. Yummy. Mmm. Well, let's get a bit of the flour. Oh, that's my personal life right there. Or let me try and taste the raw cocoa. I need to taste the joy of my emotional life. A Hebrew would say, it doesn't work like that, right? They would say, that's chocolate cake. All your life, all of that, that's your spiritual life. If you want to ask Jesus about his spiritual life, he might have given you like a puzzled look. Like my guess is he would probably respond with, what do you mean by my spiritual life? Are you referring to my life? Because all of my life is spiritual. Jesus didn't subscribe to the idea of separating the spiritual from the secular. To him, this division was utterly foreign Life was a seamless, interconnected, holistic experience where the sacred was all-encompassing. In the way of Jesus, God desired to be intricately involved in every aspect of our lives. Because in his perspective, 
Everything is spiritual and everything matters to God. Several centuries ago, there was a transformative movement of individuals who began to entertain a really revolutionary and liberating notions about God, Jesus, the church, and the essence of being human. These individuals were known as the reformers, and their mission was to instigate change within the church, completely challenging this sacred and secular divide. They introduced a bold and somewhat dangerous concept called the priesthood of all believers. They often cited words of the writer Peter. For instance, in our reading today from 1 Peter 2.9, they would cite, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And then the reformers, they would proclaim things that were really quite shocking at the time, like, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. It's pretty revolutionary stuff. Now, remember, this is, this is 16th century Europe, a time when there were already established priests, those who served within the church. They held the exclusive roles of intermediaries between God and the people. But the reformers declared, no, we're all priests. You're a farmer? Yeah, absolutely, you're a priest. You're a microbiologist? Yeah, you're a priest too. Even if you're a student in high school, you hold the title of priest. You serve as a mediator between the creator and his creation acting as his representative. You get to pass God's blessings to those who already know him and to those who have yet to discover him. You are called, everyone is called. And what each person does matters to God because it's your ministry. Hold up, I work in childcare. The word ministry essentially means service. Your ministry is your service, it's your role, your niche you occupy, where you do your part to contribute to making the world more in, in alignment with heaven's ideals. We are all engaged in service. We are all in ministry. Some, like me, serve within the church, which is wonderful, but the vast majority of you serve outside the church, maybe perhaps as a paramedic, maybe a landscape architect, a designer, a radiologist, or a parking lot attendant. However, that doesn't mean you're serving outside the realm of the kingdom, does it? And it certainly doesn't imply that what you do isn't spiritual or significant to God. Martin Luther went so far to write, the menial housework of a manservant or a maidservant is more acceptable to God than the work of monks or priests. You see, All of the kingdom action of redemption, it's happening out there, out in the world. It's not just being here, you know, listening to this sermon on a Sunday where you're able to have the biggest impact. It's out there in your places of vocation where you can make contributions to produce good in the world, just like Bezalel, just like David. That's why we need to challenge the sacred secular mindset because it tends to compartmentalize God. We have our God box, our work box, our rest box, our diet and exercise box, I don't know what that is, an entertainment box, and our money box, right? And we divide our lives into these tiny fragments. And in the process, God becomes just a mere line item in our budget, a slot in our daily schedule, a place we visit for a few hours every Sunday, 
it effectively excludes God from the majority of our existence. And this approach is so detrimental to living the kind of God-saturated, fully immersive life that Jesus desires for all of us. Maybe right now you're thinking, yeah, but Jesus' call was for us to make disciples, not troubleshoot IT problems for the company I work for. And you're right. For me, I don't see these as mutually exclusive things, but actually a significant part of us as the church being a disciple-making community. For example, if you're an IT specialist, when you step into your workplace on a Monday morning, you carry not one, but two callings. Firstly, you're called to excel in your role as an IT specialist to make your company's computer systems function seamlessly. And in doing so, you're participating in kingdom work, making the world a better place. Well done. However, you're also called to make disciples to share the teachings of Jesus. Your mission is to live in a way that prompts people to ask questions, not just about IT, but about life's deeper aspects like your purpose, joy, peace, community, hope, why you're a little bit different. Through these interactions, you may have the opportunity to invite people to become disciples of Jesus, to follow him into the work of God's greater plan. As the band comes back up, we can see a great example of this in Paul himself. He was a skilled artisan, a tent maker, throughout his years as a church planter. So at one point, he expressed to his companions, we work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Paul didn't view his occupation as a disruption from his calling. Rather, he regarded it as an integral part of it. If tent making wasn't beneath the most prolific author in the New Testament, why should it be considered inadequate to us? And what about Jesus? It's easy to overlook the fact that Jesus himself was a builder, was a carpenter. And if engaging in ordinary, unglamorous, or or a so-called secular profession wasn't beneath the very embodiment of the creator, why should it be beneath us? So, live out your vocation, your calling, regardless of what it may be, as a follower of Jesus. There are no compartments here. Everything holds significance to God. The way of Jesus should permeate, influence, and shape every aspect of your life. Maybe this looks like using your small business as a vehicle for justice and mercy. You might hire individuals who experience disadvantage, dedicate a significant portion of your profits to support you know, low-income support programs, and ensure your products are environmentally sustainable while contributing to the local economy. Or it might mean just showing up for your job as an accountant and excelling at it. By doing your job exceptionally well, you contribute to making the world a better, more flourishing place. Every day at work, you embody the way of Jesus so that your boss, your co-workers, contractors, clients or co-students catch a glimpse of what Jesus's way represents and hopefully receive an invitation to partake in it. Whatever your calling is, 
That is enough. And that's truly beautiful. Thank you, Beck.